We interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Ankar Gatte. Ankar is a Senior Fellow and Chief Content Officer at the Ayn Rand Institute, where he specializes in philosophy. Ankar, welcome back to the Debt Dialogues. Thanks. It's great to be back. So one of the things that's distinctive about the way Ayn Rand approaches political issues is that she thinks the government has only one function, to protect individual rights. And so, for instance, when it comes to the whole welfare state debate, her basic question is, is the welfare state protecting rights or is it violating rights? And of course, as we've talked about in various ways in this podcast, she thinks it's clear-cut violation of rights. And I think this approach to politics is profoundly important and illuminating but it's often misunderstood and dismissed. And so I wanted to have you on to discuss what rights are, what they aren't, and what role they should play in our thinking. So let's start there. What are rights and why should they govern our thinking about political issues? Well, from Rand's perspective, the way that she thinks about this issue is rights are a moral concept or a moral principle and they're a foundational principle for politics. So they're looking at politics and the nature of society, and particularly the nature of government, from the perspective of a proper moral view. So their moral principles crucial to understanding what is a proper government, or what you could put it, what is good government, or what a just government is. And I think one way, one handle into it and, and the way she thinks about this issue is the contrast between statism and individualism. And she'll stress that what rights means is the rights of the individual, individual rights. And she thinks prior to the creation of the United States of America, so the achievement of the founding fathers in the late uh, 18th century, prior to that, all systems of government have been status to some degree or other. And what that means is that the ultimate power and sovereignty lies in the head of state, or it's in the hands of the state. And the individual is exists uh, exist and is able to function really only by permission of the state, that he grants the, uh, the state or the head of state, whether it's a king a pope, a dictator, a tyrant, uh, uh, a whole committee of tyrants, as they say in, in, in various communist systems. Whatever, it's the power lies in the hands of the state, and they grant to an individual some special favors, privileges, some small sphere of de facto freedom, which can be withdrawn. Uh, if you're a Jew, it's withdrawn from you in Nazi Germany. If you're part of the bourgeoisie, it's withdrawn from you in Soviet Russia. So they hold, in effect, absolute power and can grant and sometimes grant privileges to the individual. But the individual is viewed completely subordinate. That, that. So statism is the power lies in the state, not in the individual. 
And the individualist perspective is exactly the opposite, that power lies in the hands of the individual. And the government or the state is viewed as the representative of the individual, as his servant or agent. So the individual holds power and he grants or delegates certain powers to the government for the purpose of the government helping the individual, or you can put it in terms of rights, for the government to protect his rights. But the what's she viewed as revolutionary about the American achievement is it's individualistic. The power lies in the individual. He grants certain power or delegates certain powers to the government. So it completely reverses the historic relationship of the individual to the state. Um, and individual rights then are a way of fully thinking about that new relationship. And we can talk about then what the content of individual rights are. But I think that is a good way of framing it, of how she's thinking about what the concept of individual rights is and why it was needed. Yes, I want to get to the content of rights in a second, but I wonder if you could, you've given the kind of contrast between statism and individualism, and yet today I think most people see it as, well, the state doesn't totally control us and we don't have unrestricted freedom for the individual. And so the process or the method by which we're taught to think about political issues is usually some version of utilitarianism where the government's job is to promote the public interest, which includes allegedly, you know, the values and rights of the individual, but also prerogatives of society. And so I wonder if you could say a little bit at this point about the contrast between thinking in terms of individual rights versus a utilitarian approach. Um, well, the utilitarian approach throws out the concept of rights. And the, when you read the major thinkers in the utilitarian tradition, sort of the foundational thinkers, if you look at Bentham and John Stuart Mill, for instance, they both um, attack the concept of individual rights or natural rights, as it would be put at the time. Um, and they throw it out of, out of politics with, and what they substitute for it is a focus again on society, on the public and its alleged good, its alleged interest. And the individual is viewed as subordinate. Morally, the individual is supposed to think of himself as what I should be doing is trying to promote, to, to take one of the common slogans, promote the greatest happiness of the greatest number. I should not be focused on myself, my own interests, my own happiness, but on society, and that what government is about is ensuring that that happens, that people do actually act in that way. So it again becomes, to the extent one has freedoms, their permissions. The state or the government permits you to act in a certain way and have a certain sphere of freedom because it thinks that will promote the public good. And when it thinks that now your freedom is interfering with the public good, goodbye to your freedom. So take take the, a, a case that galvanized people in the U.S., uh, Kilo and the eminent domain case. So this is a homeowner who wants to remain in a house. And one thinks in America, well, look, I have the freedom to own a house and to remain in it and to decide if I want to sell it or not. But now the government comes in and says, 
yeah, but if you don't sell your house, this commercial development can't go on, and that will increase the tax base of the uh, city, and the government needs this increased revenue, and and a new development would be great. So we're going to take your house from you. So you don't have that freedom. And it's because now there's a view, well, look, you exercising your freedom interferes with what we consider the public good, and so it's dispensable. That is not a system of rights. So crucial to the whole idea of rights is their absolute, and to take a, a, a way it was put in the 18th and 19th century, they're inalienable. They can't be taken from them, from you. You can't lose them, and that's part of what absolute means. And the government cannot trespass on rights. So crucial to the whole idea of rights is they define a sphere of action in which you're free to act and no one, including most especially the government, can trespass on your rights. In a utilitarian system, they will sometimes speak of rights, but they're not absolute and they're not inalienable, so they're not really rights. Um, their privilege is granted to you, and when it's decided that, no, it's not good to grant you this privilege, they're taken from you, and that is not a right. So let's say then a little bit about what rights does Rand think we have, and uh, not to give away anything, but um, I, I wonder if you could say a little bit extra about the issue of property rights, which play a really important role in evaluating the welfare state. Uh, sure. So the... Rand agrees with the formulations in the 18th century and by some of the founding fathers, but also in the English tradition and in Locke, of that there's one major right, which is the right to life. And this helps capture what it means that there's a whole moral perspective here. And one way Ayn Rand would put it is you're subordinating society to moral law, or you could put it you're subordinating society to moral principles. And so there's a definite view of morality here. A right to life means that you um, have the freedom to act in the ways necessary to promote your life and to live. And the other sort of major political rights, a right to liberty, a right to property, a right to happiness, are just further specifications of the kind of actions you have to be free to take so that you can act independently in society. So free to take means you can take these actions regardless if other people or the government disagrees with what you're doing. So it's a, a grant of independent action. And the essential action is to take those kinds of actions necessary to promote your life, which is what the right to life means. And so there's a moral view here, and it's part of what individualism means that it's moral to be pursuing and promoting your own life. You don't have to live for the collective. You're not living to promote the public good, to achieve the greatest happiness of the greatest number. You should be focused on your life. And so in society, you have to have the freedom to focus on your life and to take those actions necessary to live. And then liberty, property, happiness, as I said, are specifications of those kinds of crucial actions you have to be free to take. So liberty means a freedom of thought, of speech, of assembly and association. You have to be free to think for yourself, not to take orders from a pope or from the Taliban or from the 
Iranian government who's going to tell you what to think, what's permissible thought, what is impermissible, and you'll be silenced, jailed, or even put to death. You have to be free to speak your thoughts, to try to convince and persuade others to deal with you, uh, to engage in all kinds of profitable enterprises, whether it's business, education. So the and in the Enlightenment period from which America comes out of, I mean, they were tremendous champions of freedom of thought, of freedom of speech, and then of freedom of association and assembly. You have to be free to deal with the people you want and to go your separate ways when you don't agree with people. And that's what the right to liberty meant. And it's you have to be free to take these actions because they're crucial to your ability to live. And property is, if you think of what rights mean, is it's a right to independent action. You cannot act independently if you don't have the right to earn the property you create, to earn it, to own it, to decide how it's used, to trade it in exchange, to sell it, um, to establish the conditions on which you'll rent it or lease it. If you don't have the freedom to earn property, then you can't act independently. And go back to the example of Kilo. If somebody, if the government can take your house, you don't have freedom to act independently. You you're at the mercy of the government. So, and, and even to exercise individual uh, liberty, freedom of thought or freedom of speech, <clears throat> if a government can take control of your property, seize your home, change your whole environment, the whole idea of freedom of thought will go away. Um, if it, if it, I mean, you need a place to think. And if the government can intrude on that and take it away from you, it can take away your freedom of thought. Or freedom of speech requires money, printing press, access to the Internet. And if the government can take all these and deny you ownership and control of all those kinds of things, then it can take your freedom of speech away. So property is crucial to independent action, and no other rights can be exercised um, if you don't have the freedom to earn the property that you've produced and created, and so get to control. If it can be controlled by other people or by the government, all your rights disappear. And it's the same with the right to the pursuit of happiness. That's the freedom to define your own goals, to consistently act for them, to seek them out, it means you're not a means to other kinds of ends, whether it's the end of the greatest happiness of the greatest number, to achieve some kind of glory for your nation or for your race or for other people or for your neighbors. You can pursue your own happiness. And in order to be able to do that, you have to be able to control property, decide on its uses so that you're using it to promote your own happiness. So pr property, on Rand's view, is crucial to understanding the meaning of other rights and to understanding what it means to exercise those rights. Well, some people might think that there's a conflict then because if we need, um, you know, property in order to be able to take independent action and support our lives, what about the people who don't have any and therefore don't they have a right to certain things like an education, health care, minimum standard of living? that I think a lot of people think, well, that's the precondition for the sort of independent life-promoting action you're talking about. Well, the precondition really is earning property. The precondition of having property is having the freedom to earn 
property. And it, this is true, actually, of all the rights. Of their, what Ayn Rand stressed is that their rights to freedom of action, they're the right to take certain actions. And crucial to thinking about this whole subject and that it, what we're trying to do is subordinate society to moral principles. Part of the whole concept of rights is they're possessed by every individual equally, and that you can exercise your rights, and it is not an infringement on the rights of other people. <clears throat> so the right to freedom of speech is the right to speak, but it's not the right to have an audience. It's other people get to decide if they want to listen to you, read your books, read your newspaper column, read your blog post on the Internet, or not do that. So you have the right to speak, but you don't. there's no guarantee anyone's going to listen. There's no guarantee of an audience. And if there were, then those people's rights disappear. They don't have the right to freedom of association. Even if they don't want to hear what you have to say, the government's going to make them. I mean, that's what it would be to enforce freedom of speech as an outcome or a result, not as it's a freedom of action. And it's the same in regard to property. You have the freedom to go out and try to earn property, to produce wealth, uh, to sell your services to employers who want to employ you. Um, and then it's, a, it's a, tr a trade, and they give you some of their property in the form of money for your services. You have the right to seek that out. It's no guarantee that you'll be able to create property. Though any uh, normal, able adult, uh, even if uneducated, is able to create and to produce, um, to, to produce material goods from which he can then use some, he can save some of it towards an education, towards bettering his skills. Um, but it's the so it's the freedom to earn property and to keep it and to control it if you've earned it, and that is a freedom that everyone possesses. If you had a if what the right to property meant as is say a, a guaranteed income, the question would be regardless of what actions you take, of what you produce, if anyone else thinks it's valuable, what you produce, what they would they trade for you with you voluntarily. If you had a guaranteed income, there's the question of well, who provides it? And the person who the government says, well, you have to provide this person with a guaranteed income that person has lost his rights. He no longer has the freedom to pursue his own happiness. He now has to work partly for the happiness of someone else. He has, no longer has a right to earn property because some of what he produces will be taken from him and given to someone else. And that's all that it can mean to guarantee someone that he has a minimum income. You've deprived someone else of their rights. And the whole concept of rights is supposed to be each and every individual possesses these and possesses these equally, whether you're rich and wealthy or poor and not yet wealthy, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you're male or female, um, whether you're black or white, everyone possesses the same rights. And only if one understands them as rights to freedom of action can one get, yes, everyone possesses these same rights equally. Now, the account of rights you've given and that Ayn Rand up, uh, upholds has uh, will often be put as, well, these are negative rights, and then the kind of welfare rights that are alleged for health care, education, and so on, these are seen as positive rights. And I've heard you 
speak on why that's the wrong way to think about it. I found that really clarifying. So I wondered if you could address that kind of characterization of this view of individual rights. One, I think when one characterizes rights as negative, one loses their moral force. Um, so what rights are primarily is they're a sanction. Um, they're a sanction to independent action, but particularly they're a sanction to the actions that are necessary in order to live and pursue happiness. So they're the sanction of positive actions, of all, as I put it before, is all those actions necessary to live, of freedom of thought, freedom of speech, of association, of producing property, freedom of contract, freedom to trade. And these are the kinds of things that you need to do. You need to think. You need to speak your mind. You need to associate with the people who you think are rational, productive, you'll get values from. You need to create property. You need to trade it and exchange. I mean, it's enormously positive to live in the kind of division of labor society that we live in today in America, and you trade all the time for all. I mean, there's very few things you produce directly if you look at your house, say. Um, all of it is acquired through trade. These are the kinds of actions that are necessary to live, and this is what the rights to life, liberty, property give sanction to. Now, it's true that a person whose rights are protected may decide, I'm not going to think about things, may decide that he's not going to put in the effort to create property. A person can do that, but that's not what the rights are sanctioning. What they're sanctioning is a definite mode of life, the mode of life that is necessary if you want to reach prosperity and happiness. And in that sense, they're a positive. But precisely because what they sanction is freedom to action. They impose no, and this is one formulation that Ayn Rand would, um, it makes, they impose no obligations on other people except of a negative kind. You have your freedom of action. Don't go beyond that such that you trespass on the, and violate the rights of other people. So the negative obligation is don't violate the rights of others. The positive is you have the same freedom of action as anyone else has. Make the most of it so that you make the most of your life and, and that your pursuit of happiness is successful. And the, so that is, I think, why, if, and if you put it just that rights are negative, don't interfere with other people's rights. You don't get what, well, what's the content? That's just the negative. Don't do this. But what is the positive that is being sanctioned by the concept of rights? And that's what's crucially new about the concepts of rights that it sanctions a positive, the individual's pursuit of his own life and happiness. And if you don't understand that, then I think you can't understand the American system, the original American system, and why it's a system of individualism. You have to get the content of rights to get why it's a system of individualism, and that's a positive content. I think some people try to reduce Ayn Rand's thinking on politics to a sort of negative rule, though, which is don't use physical force. And of course, her view of the relationship between physical force and rights is really important, um, but I don't think you can put it that way. How would you say positively the relationship is between physical force and rights? Well, it, the reason that it's crucial to ban physical 
force. So, and that means the initiation of physical force, the, the introduction of force, coercion in human affairs is precisely because what physical force or coercion does is it prevents a person from exercising his rights, from engaging in the actions that the rights declare you're free to engage in this and sanctions that this is what life is about and what in, in regard to society, it's crucial to have this sphere of action protected because these actions are so important. And coercion stops you. It can, to, to stop a person's freedom of thought is, I mean, to take again, again, a kind of theocracy as a Taliban in Iran and Saudi Arabia, it is government coming in at the point of a gun telling you, no, you cannot think these thoughts. Um, if you declare yourself, uh, not an atheist, let's, let's just put it that way, that, well, no, that is taboo. You cannot think those thoughts. And if you do, force is going to be descend upon your head, and people are in fear and in a fear to think and to exercise their judgment, and the same, there's certainly a fear to speak in those um, kinds of regimes. It is coercion that can stop you from taking these kinds of actions or can smash your property or just take it from you and give it to someone else. Or it can come in and say, no, you're not to live for your own happiness. You have to work for the glory of the nation. So we're going to, as happened in America, we're going to draft you into the army and send you to Vietnam. It's all, it's coercion that can stop you from engaging in the kinds of actions that the rights to life, liberty, property, and happiness say and sanction that these are the actions you should take. And that's why coercion is evil and has to be banned, which means the initiation of physical force has to be banned. So it's a consequence of understanding the positive content of rights. Um, and if you drop that positive content, and, and there's too many uh, people in, in who would describe themselves as libertarian who do that, that drop the positive content of rights and that there's a whole moral view here and say the principle is just, well, you can't initiate force. But the question is, well, why can't you? Why is it wrong to do that? And it's wrong only because it's interfering with something that's right, that's morally right. But you first have to understand why it's morally right to live for your life and happiness and therefore to have the freedom of action to live for your own life and your own happiness. And then you can say, well, what prevents that? is wrong, bad, evil, and has to be banned. So it's, it's a consequence, a crucially important consequence, and Ayn Rand stresses that, that the only way to interfere with rights is by initiating force against an individual, and therefore what a proper society does is bans the initiation of force. But it's a consequence of something deeper and deeper in morality, and what it has to be understood as a consequence. Um, you, you keep coming back to this connection between morality and rights, and you brought up the issue of certain libertarians who drop out the perspective of morality. I think what they'll often say is that, well, look, I mean, our whole view is that the government shouldn't be enforcing morality on others. Why? Who gets to decide what the right morality is? Um, how do you, what's the error in that kind of objection? Well, it's, 
it's not an error, but it is a, it does not appreciate the concept of individual rights and why it's a crucial achievement to have reached the concept of individual rights or the, to have reached the principle of individual rights. Because this is one of the major issues that that principle addresses and resolves. So there is an issue of, well, the government is not the moral police. Its business is not to go around and tell people, well, you're behaving immorally, and therefore we're going to put a stop for you. So it's not to go around and say, well, you know, you're being dishonest, we're going to, that, but that's immoral, so that's illegal, and therefore we're going to ban it and we're going to enforce this. And, I mean, you could take dishonesty, you can take a person who lacks integrity so he doesn't uh, walk his talk. That is not moral. Um, but it's not the government's job to then go around and police, well, who's acting with integrity and who's not acting with integrity. That is left to the level of the individual citizen. And this is part of what freedom of association means, that, look, this person's dis- I've decided this person's not honest. I don't want to deal with him. I don't want him as a business partner. Um, and I'm dissolving our partnership and going my separate way. The freedom of association allows you to do that kind of thing, but it's the responsibility of the individual. So what the perspective of individual rights, to say it's a moral perspective on government, part of the crucial issue is to understand what does it mean for the government to enforce justice, and what has to be left to the individual citizens. And I mean, this is a complicated issue, but in in a nutshell, the perspective of individual rights is that you have a great deal of freedom of action within which there's many things you have to decide about who you're going to deal with, your evaluations of them, if you think they're acting immorally to go your separate ways, or how to delimit your interactions with the people. There's a lot left to the individual. What the government does is protects the, that freedom of action on the part of the support so that he can engage in that kind of thinking, that kind of deliberation, and then follow through an action of who he's going to deal with, on what terms, and why. <clears throat> so there's a moral perspective that gives rise to government and its function. But its function is not to enforce morality. And there's a crucial reason for Ayn Rand of why that could not be the government's function. She views moral issues um, and moral, uh, whether we're talking about virtues, as I was talking about, honesty, dishonesty, integrity, a lack of integrity, as issues of knowledge. One has to learn what is moral, why, what the reasons, the arguments, and the evidence for the proper principles are. And that can't be enforced. You can't get someone to understand morality at the point of a gun any more than you can get him to understand any kind of issue. Uh, Look, accept that E equals MC squared, and if not, I'm going to put you in jail. That does not produce any understanding of Einstein's discovery on the party. You can threaten him, and he might say, oh, yeah, okay, E equals MC squared, but that is not understanding of what the actual uh, principle is, what its grounds, evidence, and and, uh, the whole chain.
chain of arguments leading to that principle. That has to be left to the individual to discover. So though government comes from a moral viewpoint, its function is not to enforce that viewpoint. <clears throat> and as I say, this is a complicated issue, but that's the perspective on this issue that rights take. So that objection is raising a real issue that, well, it's not the government's job to enforce morality. That's true from the perspective of rights. But it doesn't mean that the perspective of rights, therefore, is amoral. There's a definite moral viewpoint. And part of that viewpoint is you can't enforce moral knowledge any more than you can enforce any other forms of knowledge. So it has to be left to the individual for him to think the issues through and then act on his own judgment. Um, I think in many ways we've covered this point, but I, w I wonder if you could just kind of name the relationship between a system based on individual rights and democracy. Well, democracy, if you take it seriously as designating a particular system, um, a particular political system, what it means is unlimited majority rule. Uh, and in that sense, to go back to the, the start of what we were talking about. It's a form of statism. It's a form where the power lies in the hands of the state, and here now the state is the majority. That's the voice of the state and the voice of the government, in effect. But absolute power lies in the hands of the majority, and they get to decide everything and what the rules uh, and laws of the, of the territory or nation are, and they can grant, again, privileges and favors to individuals, but it's all the power lies in the hands of the state, and the individual acts by permission. So it is a form of statism. And to say that, that a, a system of individual rights then is not a democracy, what that means crucially is that the individual's rights are not subject to majority vote. Even if the majority says, we want to take Kilo's home away from her, they can't. She has a right, she's earned that property, has a right to keep it, and no one, including a majority who have voted in an in a intricate system to say we want to take it away, they can't. That's part of what it means to say that her right to property is absolute and inalienable. It can't be taken even if a majority wants to take it. But in a system of democracy, the majority could take it away from her. And that's the sense in which even if someone owns property, they have it just by privilege, which could be taken away if the majority decide to take it away. Now, democracy today is often used to try to describe the American system. And it's just, it's not the right description. So it's not that everybody who speaks of democracy is actually in favor of unlimited majority rule but that's the what the category you're placing the american system in when you designate it as a democracy um what it was is a constitutional republic a constitution written to say these are the powers of the government only these these are its powers because they've been delegated by the individual citizens and so so to say it's a, a limited form of government, it's limited by the principle of individual rights. As the Declaration of Independence put it, um, there are certain inalienable rights, 
and governments have instituted among men to protect those rights. That's not unlimited majority rule. It is a strictly delimited government, has a very specific purpose, and can't go beyond that, and certainly can't deprive, of it, deprive any individual of his rights. So it's not a, if one takes seriously what democracy means, America is not a democracy, and it is confusing to describe it as such. Uh, let's end on this. I think a lot of people view our commitment to rights as somehow putting ideology over human welfare. And I have to say, I think the way some objectivists use this concept uh, of rights and argument reinforces that view. So you'll often get, for instance, arguments that, look, we can make people better off um, by you know raising the minimum wage. We can improve human life by, say, imposing uh, certain kinds of, you know, antitrust regulations on business. Um, we can stimulate the economy to revive it. You get all sorts of arguments, and then the response from objectivists seems to amount to, well, no, we can't do that because people have rights. And I think, I wonder if you can comment on this idea of rights versus human well-being and why you don't think there's that sort of conflict. Um, yeah, and that too is a, that, that's a complex issue. Uh, there's a, so there's a lot to say about that. Let me say a few things about it. First and foremost is rights embody a perspective on, you, you put it on human welfare, on, you can put it, they, they embody a perspective on well-being, but they're individuals. So it is the individual's well-being they help. And this is, again, that they define and sanction a positive. The types of actions an individual has to engage in if he's to live and prosper and therefore attain happiness. That's the whole perspective. So there's a crucial perspective that it's about welfare, but it's about the welfare of the individual. And part of what rights prohibit is the sacrifice of some individuals to others. So the idea of human welfare or of the public good, these are woozy, undefined terms that when you start to analyze them, always mean some individuals are going to be sacrificed to other individuals. Go back again to the Kilo example. It is from the perspective of say, well, but this would trespass on her rights. What that means is this would deprive her of crucial actions that she needs to take in order to promote her life and to achieve her happiness. And that is in part what she's telling you. When I don't want to sell my home. I don't want to move. This is crucial to my life and happiness. To deprive her of that is to deprive an individual of his well-being. Now, it will be glossed over as, yeah, but this is for the good of society, it's for human welfare. But what that glosses over is, well, we're taking this person's house in order to give it to these commercial developers. We've sacrificed Kilo to somebody else. That is not the promotion of human welfare. That is the sacrifice of some to others. If you really take seriously the idea of, a public good or human welfare. It has to be of each and every individual. And that, again, is the perspective of individual rights. It's the 
in a political context, the crucial um, element of what equality means. So it's not that equality is bad. It can be used in bad ways in politics. But from an individualist perspective, what equality means is that each and every individual's life counts. He should regard himself as an end in himself and should have the freedom to promote his own ends, his own life, his own happiness. <clears throat> and when rights are being violated, it means some people are being deprived of their ability to promote their life, to pursue their happiness, and that that is an enormous injustice. And the idea that there can be politicians, government officials, or people electing politicians and government officials, whose job is to sacrifice some people to other people, to think of people in effect as uh, pieces on a chessboard, and some of the pawns we're going to sacrifice away in regard, uh, in the name of winning the game, of it, sort of achieving a greater good. That whole perspective, the bureaucrats' perspective of um, some people are dispensable, or putting it a little differently, some people count more than others. That is what the whole perspective of individual rights washes away. Um, and, it, and it's crucial that the Founding Fathers thought of it in this way, that it is that a rich person has the same rights, and it's crucial that the government protect his rights as much as someone who's not rich. It certainly shouldn't give a rich person favors, but nor should it penalize him which is what the whole welfare state does, nor should it penalize him. His life is his to live, and the government is there to protect him as much as anyone else. And if you have that kind of perspective, I think, then the idea that it's individual rights versus human welfare or versus well-being or versus the individual's happiness, that kind of, that there's some kind of conflict between that goes away um, or is destroyed. So putting it now back in moral terms, the idea that there's some kind of conflict like that, what is really going on is that there's a different moral view at work um, when they're talking about the public good or human welfare or however, uh, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. There's a moral perspective that denies the individualism inherent in the American system and the concept of individual rights that the individual should be pursuing his own life and happiness. No, the, the moral perspective is no, the individual is subordinate to some higher moral purpose. And then he's dispensable in the name of that higher moral purpose. And that is a very different view, and it's alien to the American system. My guest today has been Ankar Gatte. Ankar, thank you for being part of the Dead Dialogues. Thanks for having me on. Well, that about says it all, so no wrap-up today. Remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to review us on iTunes. And to learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. For the latest, I encourage you to visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.